G'day everyone and welcome back to The Extras. My name is Jack. And I'm Raj. Thanks for tuning in everyone. Yeah, it's good to have you here. We are here recording The Extras on this beautiful Tuesday afternoon. It feels like spring has hit a couple of weeks early here in Sydney, which is lovely. Uh, and yet, we have these reminders that you know things are not as they should be. I'm I'm here in my garage looking at Raj on a screen right now. So these are beautiful and yet uh, interesting, difficult times as well. Yeah, how are you traveling at the moment, Raj? I'm interested, Jack. You said beautiful and interesting and difficult times. You talked about the garden and the greenery in spring. That's the beautiful. Does that mean the difficult is about looking at me on the screen? Well, I mean, only in that it's such low resolution, right? Like, I wish that your, your uh, handsome face you were go. here in, in, in full well done. Well done. <laughs> good recovery there. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm doing okay, Jack. I just this morning and yesterday, of course, news from Kabul in Afghanistan is, mm. um, I, I, I don't know why it is. I, I don't know why it is. It's just horrific scenes coming out. And, and once again, just reminded of this world and the lack of peace. And, you know, um, it, it's kind of interesting just reflecting on that and talking about Joel and the extras today. But yeah, that's just been something that's been on my heart this morning. Um, but, yeah, shall we get into Joel 3? Yeah, let's do that. I mean, as you say, there, there are heavy things happening in the world as well. Uh, and we, we serve a God who is sovereign over all these things. And maybe at the end, it'd be good for us to just spend some time praying about that um, once we get through some questions as well. Um, but we are going to get into Joel. As you said, Raj, Joel 3. Uh, for those who may not have tuned in on Sunday or those who need a refresher, can you just remind us what were we looking at in the Bible as we came to it on the weekend? Yeah, thanks, Jack. So Joel 3, I think um, it, it, it's a chapter that um, talks in very graphic and vivid terms about God's judgments. Mm. Um, and yet within that as well, it, there's this idea that with the coming of the day of the Lord, on the one hand will come judgments for those who don't know God, um, who though, for those who don't magnify his name, as we've seen in Joel. But on the other hand, um, there will be restoration for the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem and for those um, who are called God's people. He will be a refuge and he will protect them. And so I just tried to pick up on that. Um, I think this is a place in the Bible that's pretty clear where we see the kind of one event that's coming has those two implications. Mm. And so I tried to look at that firstly in terms of the people of Joel's time. Secondly, um, as Joel 3 goes on, we see how that's broadened out to more cosmic kind of terms. And then thirdly, looking into the New Testament, and I, I went to Hebrews chapter 12, coming to a mountain that once again, depending on who you are and where you stand before God, um, is either coming to a mountain of judgment or coming to a mountain of salvation. So in very broad terms, you know, there it is. And some people might be thinking, gee, Raj, you could have just preached that in two minutes and <laughs> maybe I should have, but there you go. Yeah, well, there are lots of details in there and there have been plenty more questions about the details. So I'm glad you did take uh, some good time with us on Sunday to get into the, the imagery, get into the poetry here. And we're going to do that a little more as we get into our questions. Uh, so we'll get into that. Uh, the first question, someone's picking up on verses 9 to 11 and we have these pictures of, of, of battle you know prepare for war rouse the warriors uh, these verses use military metaphors to describe the nations preparing to face God's judgment but then in verse 13 it switches to this agricultural metaphor so you get the swing the sickle the harvest is ripe uh, someone's asked why the switch yeah 
Yeah, thank you. Um, look, we, as is the case with all kind of images and metaphors in the Bible, you, you need to keep asking the question and understand the nature of poetry uh, and, and just think about the point it's trying to make. And so there are a couple of different points being made before different images. And the, the imagery of like the, the, the military metaphor we also saw in chapter two, um, I think is there just to talk about the unstoppable nature um, of, of the judgment that is coming in the same way that a thundering army comes. We saw that in, in Joel 2. The agricultural image, I think, is verse 10 um, and also then 13, um, is, is, is just trying to make, you know, a different point. Um, and so it's, it's trying to pick up on um, pictures and images that those involved in ag agriculture, you know, ordinary people, um, who make their living on the fields can relate to. And it's trying to make exactly the same points. Mm. I, I was quite struck by the one in verse 10, plowshares into swords. That is, the armies are going to come in such a way, you're going to be looking for any weapons you can, um, even using your plowshares and your pruning hooks, you're going to look to turn those into weapons. Um, you might be think, thought of as weak in our society, but you're going to have to say, I am strong to stand up in any way you can, um, even though it's quite unstoppable. Mm. And um, yeah, and and you know, then verse thirteen, there's there's the, the image of trampling the grapes for the wine press is full and and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. So you know, there again is just you know a a an overwhelming image in this case of the wickedness of the people. Yeah. Um, and it's putting that agricultural terms. Mm. Yeah, helpful. If you don't mind, I got another question that flows out of that. It's not on the questions people send in. This is just a this is a, a Jack Day question. Um, oh. Verse ten. I'm fascinated. You know, beat your plowshares into swords, uh, swords, pruning hooks into spears. Um, this verse, I always think of. Um, there's verses that are similar near the start of Isaiah, but it's the other way around. Um, uh, I'm not sure if you got a chance to think about that, but Isaiah chapter two. There's this vision of. The last days, you know, the nations are going to come up to the mountain of the Lord. And Isaiah says the people will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And in Isaiah, you have this picture of kind of, you know, God's victory. And I think there it's, you know, there's peace that the, the weapons will be laid down and turned into tools because the, the battle's all over. So I've always found it really interesting that in Joel you have, it's like an inversion. It's exactly the opposite. That we're, going, we're going backwards. We're going back from plowshares into swords in Joel. So yeah, we're just wondering if you had got the chance to think about that at all or yeah, have any thoughts on what might be going on in the, the Joel and Isaiah kind of conversation there. Um, I am not familiar with the Joel one. Sorry, with the Isaiah one. I am familiar with the Joel one. You'll be pleased to know. Sure. <laughs> um, um, so just as you've talked about that, I likewise have been quite struck by just what you've said um but i don't know how helpful i can be just because i haven't really thought about that issue that's all right we can leave that you know you can get back to me on the podcast about that question sometime yeah <laughs> that's all right we'll keep going um yeah helpful like in all these things when we have poetry i mean poetry is poetry and you can jump from images to images very quickly and that's part of the beauty of poetry hebrew poetry is just the same as ours in that regard but yeah i think you unpack that hopefully for us thank you um we'll come on to another question we had a stack of questions come in all about valleys and about mountains, which is, yeah, quite interesting that many people were really struck by that 
on this geographical aspect of Joel chapter 3. Um, so we'll get into a few of these. Uh, if, you, if you send a question like this, I may not ask you a question exactly as it came in because there's a fair bit of overlap. Um, but we'll come into a couple of these questions. Maybe to start with, someone was saying uh, in chapter 2, uh, there was this language of, of mountains, uh, God's judgment coming to Judah on the mountain. Chapter 3, it's the judgment coming in the valleys. So 3 verse 2, you're going to bring the nations down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There in verse 12, verse 14, about the valley of decision. Someone's asked, uh, firstly, why is it different? Why is it mountains in chapter 2 and then valleys in chapter 3? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I think it's it's connected actually with the first question, that is different metaphors trying to make different points. Um, in this case, I think it's different metaphors trying to make similar points. And, and it's just trying to, you know, so the image of a mountain often in the Bible and, you know, Mount Sinai and um, New Testament as well, thinking about the mountain of the Lord, there is a picture of strength, um, something that you have to work really hard to, you know, it, it, it almost seems like you can't conquer a mountain, um, which mm. feeds into just thinking about strength. When it comes to a valley, um, we had this question a few times on Sunday, and what just jumped into my mind, and I shared this with people on Sunday, was that one time I've been paintballing and my team was asked, was assigned the fort and we were all excited. We thought, you know, we're going to go to this fort. I went up to the top level of the fort and I got up there and I realised, oh, my goodness, we are in a valley. Mm. We were surrounded by the other team in all directions and, and there was a lot of paintballs that, that went out. <laughs> it was raining and, down and, on you. Yeah, well, I, I probably still have some scars from... Anyway, um, but I think that's the image of the valley. That mm. is, you know, you're in a valley and you're surrounded. You can't escape. Um, and so it's making a very similar point. The mountain is one of strength. The valley is one where you can't kind of escape from. Um, so that's, that's where I went. And... Look, we may come here with some other questions. Let me just preempt it. Someone, uh, in fact, it was Candy on Sunday, just was started talking to me about, you know, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, where we see King Jehoshaphat, um, those doing growth groups, you know, it's, it's in your studies to go looking in that. There's just this really interesting thing. So, so basically what happens is under the reign of King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20, I think it is, um, um, they get word that judgment is going to come in the form of nations. And the people, led by King Jehoshaphat, they cry out to the Lord. Now, the Lord then saves them, and they're taken into this place that from memory is called the Valley of uh, Baraka, which means Valley of Praise. And so that's just, you know, that's interesting. There's a contrast there. Maybe the valley image, you know, you, you go a few different ways in just going to the um, the default kind of judgment because people have stopped magnifying the name of God. But on the other hand, um, if if you cry out to the Lord and in Joel's language, you accept the invitation to return to him, mm. you end up then in, in, in a valley of praise. So there's different ways in which the Bible may, may be working. Maybe that's reading too much into it, which is also possible, <laughs> but, but I'm tantalized by the idea. That is very interesting. So if I can just kind of put that together. So Joel's talking about the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which is this place of judgment. And yet in the reign of, you know, the King Jehoshaphat, there's this Valley of praise or blessing. Uh, so 
And I'm thinking you're suggesting perhaps, I mean, this is, you know, there's, it's hard to make these links sometimes, but perhaps there's a hint there that this valley of judgment will lead to a blessing. Is that sort of summing up that, that possibility? Yeah, via the root of the people crying out to God. Yeah, sure. And, and, and embracing that invitation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, do, I do find it yeah. interesting. It's often, yeah, for these little geographical details and place names, it, it's hard to be certain on those kinds of links, but there's, uh, I, I resonate with what you said there, the tantalizing possibility, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we'll keep going on this theme then because there are more questions here. Um, coming back to this place name, someone's just asked, um, so Josh, what, is, what does this word mean? So I think in your talk you talked about it as the, the place of judgment. Uh, someone says their footnote says Yahweh will judge. Yeah, what's, what's the meaning of this name here? Yeah, so look, my understanding was the Valley of Judgment, but I'm also quite happy with Yahweh will judge. Um, and it's getting at a very similar idea. In fact, in some ways, theologically speaking, if I can, I prefer Yahweh will judge because that then links me even more closely to the Acts passage I looked at on Sunday, Acts mm. 10, I think it was, that talks about Jesus being judge. Um, but I don't want to use theological categories to you know drive back in. Um, but look, either way, it's talking about this this concept of judgment. Either way, it's very clear it's Yahweh who's behind it. Yeah. Even in terms of a text of Joel itself. Sure. Um, yeah. 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 Like I think just in terms of the language, like Yeho is kind of short for Yahweh. Yeah, I mean, like you know, the older way of writing that word was Jehovah, like that Jeho. That's the little shortened form yeah. of God's name, and Shafat means to judge. So yeah, I think Yahweh will judge is what the word means putting it together so yeah if that you know points further towards that direction of god being the judge and ultimately in jesus then i think that's picking up on yeah what the name means that's that makes sense to me thank you jack you've just made the exegetical argument so thank you <laughs> my, my pleasure um another question in in this uh situation one of the other names that comes up is the valley of decision so that's the way it's referred to in uh, verse yeah. 14 um, could you explain the significance of that? And particularly, you know, who is, if this is about a decision, what decision is being talked about? You know, who's deciding? Is this the people decide something? Or is this God decides something? Yeah. Why is it the value of decision? Yeah. Um, so first thing to say there is, I, I think verse 14 is the marker of moving from more localized terms uh, to more cosmic terms. So mm. the language there, multitudes, multitudes, it broadens it out from very particular. So verse four um, talks about Tyre and Sidon and, and, and very particular regions. Um, so I think that's that's you know it's almost like a subheading of Joel three, but that's broadening it out. And you know the decision, um, I I can't help but think that's a play. That is, it could be in part in the context of Joel, it's a decision that the people have to make. Mm. Um, and, you know, verse 16 ends up saying the Lord will be a refuge for his people. So there's a decision point for for people to, um, you know, turn to the Lord and perhaps be, if, if we go with the Valley of Baraka we talked about in 2 Chronicles, um, um, accept that invitation. But it also is presented to us in terms where, you know, the decision is coming from the Lord as a, as a form of judgment. I find it quite interesting. Verse 15, the sun and moon will be darkened, the stars no longer. I, I, I keep thinking of the cross. Mm. But, of course, even just, you know, darkening, I think even in, you know, modern imagery, 
dark thing is an image of, you know, bad things happening kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, so two things to say. One, it's the broadening out in the cosmic direction, multitudes. And two, the word decision just does have a bit of a play on it. You know, it's, it can be taken two ways. And I think both are intended. Yeah, that's helpful. I think that's often the case in, in poetry particularly. Like, you know, puns and plays on words, that's that's part of what poetry is. So, yeah, I don't think we should be yeah. surprised if we see that, you know, there may be two different meanings here. I don't think we're always necessarily forced to choose between them. Sometimes, you know, the author of this text is smart enough to be saying, actually, yeah, they're kind of edging at both possibilities and that's part of how the language is, is playing around. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, and, and, and the nature of poetry. I wish I could write poetry like this. I can't. <laughs> Maybe you can, Jack, but but I read it in the Bible and I think about it and it takes me a little while to get there sometimes, but it, it really is quite beautiful the way it's put together and evokes things for us that are designed to be taken in different directions. Yeah, I mean, as a little aside on that, I think that as I get older, more and more I gravitate to the poetry in the Bible. Like I think, think back to being a younger Christian and, you know, even a late teenager, early 20s, I think I just... I just wanted like the straight propositions like, you know, loved getting into Paul's letters. Just give me the kind of argument. Let me work out the logic. I just want the, the facts. And I don't know, as I go along, I think the the different um, just ways that the poetry of the Bible is meant to evoke a response from us and engage our emotions. Like I think that um, more and more that dimension of the scriptures is is speaking to me and, and helping me see it's, it's not just information that God is presenting to us here. He's also... Um, yeah, using these different images and words and the poetry of it to help us not just learn something, but to actually feel a response to it. Um, I've often heard, I heard a, a friend my age say something similar recently that it's like he, all of a sudden the Psalms make sense. Like as a, as a younger Christian, you kind of, the Psalms are boring. Like it's just always, you know, people crying out how long, yeah, okay, I get it. Um, I can make a kind of academic case for how God and suffering fit together, but as you go on through life, just the the imagery and the way that the Psalms tug on our heart just for him seem to make more sense. I think I relate to that as well. So, yeah, I think it's a good thing that God's given us this whole range of different text types to uh, speak to different parts of our being, sometimes more our mind, sometimes more our heart. It's all in there. Amen. Good stuff. We'll keep going on then. Uh, we have a few questions that are starting to dig into some of the, I guess, more... Um, somber and profound thoughts being expressed in Joel 3, particularly this question about uh, the nations and their role in uh, oppressing Judah and God's judgment, that kind of thing. Uh, Let me read one of these questions. Uh, This person says, God used the nations to judge Judah, but God's judgment is just. My question is, why does God use an ungodly people to treat Judah in an evil way? But shouldn't the judgment of God be just and not evil? And then why should the nations be punished if they're carrying out God's judgment? So there's two parts there. We might tackle the first one first. So you've got these ungodly nations. You know, look at verses like 4 to 6 in this passage. You've got people who have been, you know, carrying off the people of Judah and selling them to slavery, that kind of thing. How can people doing evil be the ones bringing, you know, almost as agents of God's judgment? Yeah, thank you. I think this question was at night church, and I love the question. Um, and I... I wonder if it's helpful to distinguish between um, the outcome of judgment and the means of judgment. So the outcome of judgment is really a derivative and a reflection of the character of God who is just, as, as it said in the question. Mm. And so therefore God must judge is, I think, the first and most fundamental point. We struggle with that 
you know, we, we in the modern day, I think, can very easily think that um, letting people off the hook is loving and that overrides justice. Yeah. But for God, he's both loving and just. Mm. So in terms of the outcome, the, the means by which God brought that about was to send Jesus. Yeah. And and that's where on the cross we see both the love of God and the justice of God come together. Mm. Now, in terms of the means of judgment in Joel 2, I think, I, I, let me just take Jesus for a moment. Um, Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, on this incredible speech on the temple steps, Peter actually talks about this same principle. And he says, you know, what to the Jewish leaders, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Yeah. So there is another really, you know, um, when the stakes are really high, an example of God using unjust people and evil people to bring about his own ends and purposes and justice. Mm. Um, so it's no surprise to me now coming back into Joel 3, so I'm moving away from the outcome talking about the means, that God, he now is looking at the nations who on the one hand are certainly evil because of how they have treated God and his people, um, but at the same time, God has worked through those evil nations to bring about judgment on on his people, Israel. Yeah. Now, they're still held accountable, um, you know, for the way they've treated God and his people, and, and so that judgment will then come to catch up um, in due course. So I, I don't know if you have a comment, Jack. I just I find it helpful in my head to separate the outcome of justice and the means of justice as a way of just getting my head around this question. Yeah, I think that's helpful, yeah. I think another passage that always springs to mind in this discussion for me is Isaiah chapter 10, which I think is, again, this um, you have both these things going on. So in Isaiah 10, there's this discussion about Assyria and the nation of Assyria's role in the, the judgment of, of, uh, of Jerusalem and, and Israel. Um, and you have, like, Isaiah 10 verse 5, God says, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against the godless nation. I dispatch him against the people who anger me to seize loot, snatch plunder, to trample them down. And again, you have those same kind of questions. Like on the one hand, God is sending this nation against his people, which is his act of justice. Israel have sinned. They deserve to be punished. This is the, you know, it's quite a vivid picture. The, the, the club that God's picked up to, to smash Jerusalem with. But then he says, woe to Assyria. Like, why would God be calling kind of woe and curse and judgment on the club that he's picked up to to smash Jerusalem with. And I think Isaiah gives you a helpful reasoning for, for why that's the case. It's further down in the passage, um, Isaiah 10, uh, 12 and 13, uh, when the Lord has finished his work against Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty yeah. look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I've done this by my wisdom. Because I have understanding, I've removed the boundaries of nations. So you see there that the thing that Assyria is going to be punished for is their pride. God has used them as the instrument of his wrath against Jerusalem. But from the king of Assyria's point of view, he's not there, you know, doing it because he thinks God is great. He just thinks, yeah, like, you know, we're ruling the world. I'm, I'm the greatest. And it's for his pride that God will bring him down. So there's enough room in God's purposes, both for him to use this nation as the instrument of justice against his people, but then 
their wills are operative in that process as well. Like Assyria weren't doing it because they wanted to obey God. They did because they think they were the greatest and wanted to rule the world. And that's why they'll be brought down. So you see yeah. both those things going on. I find that a helpful passage to see the, the different sides of that coin. Good on you, Jack. And I loved how you just had Isaiah 10 in your mind and heart just for this moment. So, you know, look, it, it, there's, there's one example um, that I, I joke that wasn't in my head. <laughs> but it's not an example. And other places in the Bible, there's other examples of this God using evil means and evil people to achieve his ends. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Helpful. Yeah. Um, going even more specifically into this issue, someone's asked the question about slavery in Joel 3. So you've got um, God's people, uh, you know, uh, Joel 3 verse 3, uh, they, they, the nations cast lots for my people. They traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. Someone's asked, why is God's response to the enslavement of his people more slavery? Because then down in verse 8, he says, I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. And this person said, they know that God's justice is always right, but this feels uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I get it. Um, I think it's an example of um, uh, the phrase that comes to mind is the punishment fits the crime. Yeah. And so the, the, the crime was casting lots, you know, basically treating God's people as inhumane in trading them for prostitution and so on um and the punishment that will then come around at the appropriate time is them being treated in the same way mm. um and you know my my mind goes actually to romans chapter one that i think talks about this it was romans three that talks about this it's romans one sorry which is about god giving people over to the desire sinful desires of their own hearts yeah and there's all kinds of things talked about there that um, people don't realise the consequences, but the form of punishment that God will um, that God will enable is for people to be allowed to see the full force of what it is that is on their heart, and in this case, what it is they're subjecting other people to. Mm. Um, so quite sobering. We, the whole of this chapter, I find, is quite sobering. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. But yeah, you definitely see that sort of, you know, eye for an eye sort of thing going on here. There's a there's a retribution that, that God brings to those who have mistreated people in a certain way. It sort of comes back yeah. to bite them, yeah, which I think sobering is a good word for it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's helpful. Now, uh, we've got one last question to, to wrap us up, and uh, this will help to hopefully bring a lot of these things together. Um, we've had uh, someone sent in another question about the day of the Lord. And I think I said on Sunday morning, um, we've had this question, I think, come up in some form sort of every different week. And it's, it's good that people are still wrestling with this concept because I, I get it. Like, I think that uh, it can be quite confusing seeing how uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament uses this language of the day of the Lord. So someone's asked, is the day of the Lord the same as the last days or... Did the last days start with the death of Jesus and then will they culminate with the day of the Lord? So if I can summarize that, I think this question is giving us sort of two options. Is it, you know, the Bible sometimes talks about the last day, sometimes the last days. 
is it that they're the same thing? Or is the last day uh, um, primarily the... Sorry, no, I'm getting mixed up. The second one was the last day. Oh, sorry, the last days. So the last days is from the death of Jesus to the day of the Lord. So the second option is the day is more of a just one-off yeah. thing at the end of time. I've probably made that more confusing, but if you can help clear it up for us, perhaps. Well, I think it's a confusing area that, that as, as we have seen yeah. um, this week's in this series. And look, I, I might just start actually, Jack, with I think what you said on Sunday morning, um, which I just found you know, a really helpful way to put it. Um, and that is, Joel is talking, if you think of a mountain or a mountain range, mm. um, you Joel is looking at the mountain range from a distance and from a distance, it all just looks like a mountain range. Yeah. That, that's what you call it. This big blob so on the it, horizon, just, yeah. You know, it, 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 there's the day of the Lord. There's the last days. Then when you go trekking and you actually get involved in it, you actually see the mountain range comprises of several different mountains and there's valleys and there's all kinds of, you know, fine detail. The New Testament is speaking from in the midst of that that mountain range. Mm. And so, you know, the big ticket items there, you look back to the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, um, which has happened in the past, and you look forward to the return of Jesus. Um, and so that is... Now, I had a diagram on Sunday. We can't put a diagram on an audio podcast, of course, but but that diagram is just, was just picking up on the, the period of time called the last days. Mm. Um, and then I think the additional nuance that is here is, well, when is the day of the Lord? Yeah. And um, I'm interested in your comment here again, Jack, but my as I just reflect on it again now, for me, the... the, the the Old Testament references to the day of the Lord, um, or really the biblical references to the day of the Lord, either take you to the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, mm. or take you to that time when Jesus is going to return. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like the last days is more a period of time um, that, and and the day of the Lord is, you know, in a sense, picking up on one of the mountains of Jesus death resurrection ascension or the mountain that is yet to come of his return yeah do you want to qualify that jack or fill that out or does that i think it's really helpful yeah and um yeah i think that's a yeah a great great unpacking of it um a couple of things other things that might be helpful on this one is i think we can sometimes flatten out the bible and just sort of assume it's all the same. So the prophets were talking about the day of the Lord. They must have had this particular day in mind. So why is it that you get the New Testament and suddenly we're talking about multiple days? But I don't think that's really what was going on with the prophets. Like um, the, the category of progressive revelation, I think is helpful here. Like the Bible is this storyline that's unfolded over hundreds and thousands of years. And a lot of the things in the Old Testament are... Um, a little shadowy there you know hebrews talks about them as the shadows of the things to come um i think a, a passage that can be helpful is uh, 1 peter chapter 1 uh, peter's talking about the prophets and you know they're the ones who foretold that the christ would come uh, 1 peter 1 10 to 12 says concerning this salvation the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. And it was revealed to them they were not serving themselves, but you, 
when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So I think what Peter's saying there is the prophets didn't have all the answers. Like they were told these things from God about the future to come. And they're like, you know, they were there wrestling with it, trying to work out when is this talking about what's going to happen? Um, they didn't know exactly what it would look like. It's only now that Jesus has come that we're the ones who ultimately they were serving because we have seen the fullness and we've seen the mystery fully revealed. So when the prophets talk about the day of the Lord, the message they're saying from God is this this time in the future when salvation and judgment are going to happen. It's this, this forward-pointing, um, great, spectacular time that is to come. But I don't know if they were expecting it to be a single day or what. The thing that matters is when we come to the New Testament, we see the language used in different ways. So yeah, as you said, sometimes it points to... To, to Jesus at the cross and sometimes to the last day. And I think particularly the last day now is the accent it takes on. So I look at a passage like 1 Thessalonians 5, um, verse 2, talks about the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's pointing forward to the day that's still to come. But yeah, I hope that helps a little bit as well if you're wrestling this through, that what the prophets longed to understand and longed to be able to look into and hear the details of, we have those details now because we've seen Jesus come. So we have a fuller picture. And I think that you gave us a pretty helpful unpacking of it before, Raj. Yeah. And, and look, like I got the mountain range idea from you, Jack. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, I just find it helpful. And I, I'm just so encouraged that people, questions around this have kept coming through. And please keep that coming. Yeah. Uh, because it just, you know, it some of these things are complex and hard to understand. We, we do have... You know, our, our ability to reason is compromised because of the fall um, for, for all of us. And so it's just fantastic. I think it's Paul's that we have the extras podcast to dig down into various matters like this. So thank you. Yeah, it's, it's always a joy for us as we talk these questions through. And we thank you who are listening for your questions too, because that gives us the opportunity to have these chats. Yeah, and we hope it's helpful for you. Yeah. As we wrap up, Raj, can you give us a, just a little snippet of what's happening this coming Sunday? Well, this coming Sunday, I am delighted that James Chen is preaching um, um, on the live stream. And look, it's finishing Joel from verse 17, and I, I couldn't help myself but go just a little bit into that on Sunday. But really, that's the that's the high point of Joel that talks about, um, you know, I've titled the series From Crisis to Victory, and here we see victory. Mm. And 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 look, I, I I might leave it at that. I think it's a wonderful passage. Joel has been quite um, um, sobering in many ways, and yet this this week, as we wrap up Joel, we're then going to you know just see where the, where the climax of that is. Yeah, looking forward to that. Thank you. I'm wondering as we wrap up, would you be as we hinted at the start, you know, with things happening in our world, with COVID going around us, and particularly what's going on in Afghanistan at the moment. Would you be happy, Raj, to, to pray for us and those who are Absolutely. listening along might like to pray yeah. along with us as we pray? Father, we we come before you um, at this time, and we just want to pray firstly for what we've learned in Joel chapter 3 and looking at this coming day of the Lord, which is both going to be a horrific time for those who continue not to magnify your name, but is going to be a wonderful time for those who seek refuge in you. Um, we thank you that we can through Jesus. We've talked even in the last little while about your um, love and justice coming together in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we thank you for that. But Father, we also just want to come before you um, at this time, thinking about our world and what we see unfolding in Afghanistan, in particular just at this moment, but also 
we we lack peace in our world. We see the impact of sin in our world in all kinds of ways. Um, much of our world is in lockdown at the moment, struggling to know how to deal with COVID. This morning again, we have so many cases in our in our own state, um, and we just pray that you would work deeply in the hearts of men and women around the world and show them of the refuge that people can have because of the Lord Jesus. Um, we pray for each one of us listening, tuning in. We pray that you would help us to have our comfort and refuge in you, um, despite how the world might look and knowing the victory that we can have. Um, and indeed, just like Joel moves from crisis to victory, so can we. And we pray that that's something that you will keep reminding us of and keep helping us to come back to. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. We'll catch you later.